Hello, and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. This episode is called The Role of Luck. Robert Muchamore talks to me about writing a very successful series. The Cherub books, written to get boys reading, have sold over 13 million copies worldwide, and I wanted to know what Robert's secret was. I was also amazed to discover how prolific he is and how quickly he writes. Maybe these things are connected. I've been pondering a lot on our conversation since, and I think it will change the way I write. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast. We recorded this episode in January 2020. Links to the resources we mention are listed in the show notes, so do look them up if you want to find out more. And if you need to access the show notes, you can always find them on prepublish.net. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Robert. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on Prepublished. Thank you. It's good to be here. We've got an hour or so to chat, and I am feeling very honoured to be here in your very lovely house, overlooking your very lovely garden. And I wanted to talk to you about writing series, which you have very famously done, and also writing for boys. And I do this with a very kind of personal bent to it because uh, my older boy was a massive fan of the Cherry books and then the Henderson books. And so I'd love to talk about what amazing gift you have for getting boys interested in books. But to start off with, um, I gather that you didn't start writing for children. Is that right? Um, I think like a lot of people who want to be writers... Uh, I was someone who grew up uh, reading lots of books as a teenager. And I suppose the thing that I read and sort of admired most when I was in my sort of mid to late teens was literary fiction. So that was probably where I saw myself as being this sort of high end literary, you know, that was my ambition. Uh, and I spent a long time trying to write literary fiction and uh, frankly I wasn't very good at it Um, it's not my type of thing at all but I guess you have to learn that over time you know but yeah I I fancied myself as being the sort of the next Martin Amis or the next John Updike. And how long did you try out that kind of fiction for? It it went for a really long time but I, I think the thing that's really important to stress is it was in a very disjointed way I knew I was never doing anything good. I started lots of different projects. Mm -hmm. Nothing ever got beyond a few chapters. I was very unhappy. um, And it just didn't ever really work well. So, I mean, one of the things I say now is, you know, when young people ask me about writing, and I always say, for goodness sake, try different things, because I just got stuck in this rut, probably between sort of the age of about 14, 15, and almost to the end of my 20s. So, you know, about 13 or 14 years where I was just writing something that I wasn't very good at. Wow, gosh, that's, that feels like a long time, I suppose, when you're going through it. Yeah, and I mean, when I look back on, it did give me some experience. And I think when I sat down to write my kids' books, I, I did have a level of experience that I wouldn't have if I hadn't gone through that period. Yeah. But even so, you know, uh, try different stuff. Don't, don't get stuck in a rut, even if it's something you don't think you'll be good at. And during this time, or certainly in your 20s, you had a day job, didn't you? Which I've always found very fascinating. Yeah, I I worked for a company called Fraser & Fraser, which were um, probate researchers, tracing missionaries and beneficiaries. It's actually quite funny because the BBC made a reality TV series called Air Hunters. Mm -hmm. uh, And it ran for about, I think it's finished now, it ran for about 10 seasons. And it was actually set at the company that I used to work with. 
And Air Hunters, uh, it actually started, they shot the pilot while I was still working for them. Uh, but when the actual series started, uh, I had already left. Uh, and the funny thing was when they shot their establishing shots, like things like people turning on a light switch or people opening a drawer, they would uh, occasionally use one of the establishing shots where I was there. So the extent of my television fame was a shot of me turning on a light switch. Excellent. We must look out for that. Um, <laughs> And at some point during this process, uh, I understand, you were chatting to your nephew who wasn't a great reader? Yeah, this is one of those stories where I think when you do an event and very often, I mean, the nice thing about a podcast is you've got a lot more time, but very often with an event or a TV interview, you've got a very short space of time. So this is one of these things that got grossly simplified. Okay, great. Can I have the complicated version? For sure, yeah. I mean, the way way we've always pitched it is to go around and say, you know, um, I was on holiday in Australia. My nephew uh, was a sort of classic boy, reluctant reader. And I immediately had the idea to write the Cherub books. Yeah. Um, And there's a degree of truth in that, but it's actually as real life so often is, it's longer and messier. Mm -hmm. I actually, when I worked it out, I think about sort of two or three years elapsed between me seeing Jared in Australia when he was a surly teenager. And I was really interested in sort of what he was like and the things he was interested in. But it was a much slower process and I think other factors came into it. Uh, I think because Cherub was a spy thing, it was very much the spy kids thing. It was a little bit about I worked doing sort of investigative work. So that meant I... I sort of recognised the difference between real life investigations and the way they were always portrayed in the sort of James Bond spy kids mm. type thing. And it was just this whole mishmash of different ideas. But I mean, at the root, the Jared story is true. It's just that we sort of grossly simplify it. So did you have Anthony Horowitz in in the back of your mind at some so point? So the, 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 the relationship between Cherub and Alex Ryder is actually fascinating. And I think it really shows how incredibly important just a level of luck is Mm -hmm. when you become published. So I basically started writing uh, The Recruit, my first Cherub book, in about 2001, 2002. And the uh, first Alex Ryder book wasn't actually published at the time I had the idea to write a kid's spy book. Mm. Uh, But then what happened for me, very fortunately in publishing terms, is the Alex Ryder series came out. It started doing quite well. And my I I sent the recruit to an agent almost unaware. I think by the time I was sending it to an agent, I was aware of the Alex Ryder books. But what happened was uh, I happened to have written a kid's spy book at the time when the Alex Ryder series had just become successful and lots of publishers were suddenly looking for a kid's spy book. Now, if you think about that, if I had read the Anthony Horowitz books and then written a kid's spy book, the market probably would have been swamped and every publisher would have had their spy series acquired. Uh, So it really was just luck. I was very much in the right place at the right time. And I think this is one of the things I always emphasise with writers. You know, it's not that you're worse than other writers or you're better than other writers. There is always in in any artistic profession, I think, a huge level of luck. And that was just pure luck. I could not have planned that at all. It's kind of reassuring, really, isn't it, to know that in a way. It's both reassuring and terrifying. (laughs) I often think about, you know, the alternate future where I didn't have that chunk of luck. And I don't know, maybe I'm still working for Fraser and Fraser. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you weren't writing in counterpoint to Alex Ryder. I I just find that interesting because one of the things that you've you've talked about is you write, certainly with Cherub anyway, you were writing attainable fantasy. And for me, the Alex Ryder books are unattainable fantasy. Uh, You know, they they go off in a a more sort of fantastical way. Um, But that was just something that you naturally wanted to do, was it? I I think it's that thing like when you're a small kid, 
you know, you can sort of, you know, you can pretend you're a lion, you can pretend you're anything, you can believe anything. And then when you get a little bit older, I think you need a fantasy that's more believable. And I was kind of targeting readers who would read a kind of, say, a Harry Potter book and think, this is interesting, but this isn't quite real. This could never happen. And what I wanted to do with Cherub was kind of take it back to the level where the kids got to do really exciting and adventurous stuff. But it all felt very believable and quite gritty and quite realistic. And I mean, if you break it down in a very serious way, you'd probably sort of see the plot flaws. But if you're reading it on a fairly sort of, you know, on the level that most people would read a book without going into detailed analysis, mm. I think most of the stuff in a Cherub book comes across as being very believable. It does. Um, I was rereading The Recruit last night and the night before, and it's, it's so exciting. And it does have that feel to it of, yeah, this is something that could be happening yeah. right now. And one of the other things I do quite consciously is a technique I just call grounding the story. And I, I often depict very um, mundane things. I know there's a lot of pressure on people. Oh, you've got to keep the pace up in a book for boys and you've got to have lots of excitement and everything has to be going at full pelt. And I always find the opposite. If you want to make a story believable, what you want to do is to ground it. And I often get emails from people saying, well, why do you depict James having a shower or James mm. sitting on the loo or uh, just James a mundane conversation? James really smelly. Yeah, you know, James, you know, you walk in James's room and there's grubby socks over the floor or something like that and I just think that's actually really important because it just you know a kid sitting in his bedroom reading my book in his scruffy bedroom can relate to James sitting in his room in his scruffy bedroom you know and I think things like that are actually really important to ground the story in believability. One thing I've found reading them now is for me that they're just constantly kind of counterintuitive in what you think James is going to do something and he doesn't do it. I mean, at the beginning, you, know, you think he's going to listen to authority, behave, not go out with the with really bad boys, not smash a car window. And he just keeps on doing these unexpected but perfectly in-character things. And I found that was what was making me turn the pages. Well, what is this boy going to do next? What's going to happen to him? Yeah, I'm always incredibly conscious. Uh, and I think it's actually a very personal thing. When I read something like uh, most conventional kids' fiction, uh, the heroes tend to be very black and white. And I, I remember going back to a teenager that I really didn't like it. And even now, like when I watch these superhero movies, the thing that always really frustrates me is you get to the last sort of 40 minutes and the punch up at the end. And it doesn't really excite me in any way because you pretty much know what's going to happen. Mm. It might happen in a slightly different way, but the good guy, the good guy's always going to win. You know, the, the main baddies, the, the main baddie and the main goodie are going to wind up having a fist fight and the good guy will win. And, and it's so predictable. And I think in the vast majority of my books, the good guys do win in the end. But I, I always try and make it interesting and do it in sort of different and inventive ways. You do. And yeah, it's not clear how it's going to work. And it, it often it doesn't end up working perfectly. It's society is complicated. And I think you reflect that. And that's one of the things that my son Freddie really, really loved about it, that, you know, he he didn't feel everything was tied up neatly with a bow and he knew that life wasn't like yeah, that. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think I think that was probably sort of influenced by, you know, by, by the sort of TV stuff that was around in the early 2000s, you know, stuff like The Sopranos coming along right. and stuff like that, you know, where everything was a bit messy and a bit ambiguous and the characters were interesting and you often rooted for the good guys rather than, sorry, the bad guys rather than mm. the good guys. And I, I just kind of wanted to capture that because I felt it was very much missing uh, when I was in my sort of tween, early teen period. I find that really interesting. So many of the writers that I talk to and editors as well, and particularly for, the, for this podcast, we end up talking about the TV that we love because we all think that that, that is where the great writing is and the series that we're binge watching and... 
perhaps the idea that one can can bring what you're excited by in Netflix, let's say, into your children's writing. It might not seem very obvious, but obviously it can it can work. I I, th- I, th- I definitely think dif- different media influence us, and I, th- I think the thing with books is there are just so many books published. It's very often to find common ground to talk about as well. Because it's funny, I posted a picture on Instagram, and I think I read seventy four books last year. But I bet if you walked upstairs into my study and saw those seventy four books, there's a chance that you might have read one, two, or possibly none of them. Yeah. So I think the thing about one of the reasons why writers often talk about TV and movies is not because we're obsessed with TV and movies, but just because when when you need a current common currency to discuss something it's very difficult for me to discuss with you you know a book that you haven't read whereas you're much more likely to have watched the wire or the sopranos or the crown or whatever very true although i have read my sister the serial killer so we could talk about that (laughs) everyone's read but we're not going to talk about it now even though it's very good so i i should say i'm i'm assuming that uh the people listening to the podcast will know and and i'll put put some details probably in in the show notes cherub series Boy Spy, I and mean, we'll talk about your other series as well, but but this one, Boy Spy, called James Choke. Was it pronounced Choke to start with? He was James Choke was his birth name, and then he's, he's basically James Adams James through Adams, the series. He becomes, there's a little bit of kind of skullduggery pleasant in that. I like the idea of children choosing their own names. Um, so James Adams, his sister Lauren, um, who become orphans early on. Again, that was kind of unexpected, <laughs> the way you did that. Um, and become spies because naturally and I've always found this so utterly believable um the government has to use children as spies because they're they're the best kind because nobody ever will ever imagine that uh that a child is is secretly spying for the UK I think that your work of genius was was to have um James and Lauren go through a very um hierarchical system of um, of development and training in spy school because that is what children want to do, don't they? They want to be, be a part of something, go through the process, graduate. Um, was that something that you thought about early on um, in terms of constructing how it's going to work? Maybe it was in the back of my mind, but I think it was more of a, a, a kind of a, a fascination with uh, the fact that kids are quite... Kids genuinely are quite pampered these days and they get driven around everywhere. And I mean, it's rare to even see a kid walking along the street on their own. Um, and, and it was just this idea that, you know, what would appeal to kids would be this kind of quite quite tough, quite exciting, quite adventurous environment. And it was also sort of some of my favourite films and favourite books and things like, you know, uh, Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, to go back to quoting from films again, you know, those tough training sequences. And I just thought they were really good fun. And the idea of just kind of being mean and really horrible to these kids, I think quite a lot of what I do is actually not that well thought through. I often just do something because I just think the scene with James, you know, having a bucket on his head and the the evil instructor whacking the bucket with a stick while he's got a metal bucket on his head is just funny. Um, so I think it came out of quite a lot of things. We've talked about, um, we, keep, we sort of keep on talking about readers reimagining this and then enjoying it being boys. And it sounds as though you had boys in mind when you were writing it. But there are also girls at Cherub, aren't there? And I think a lot of your readers are also girls as well. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, it's actually really embarrassing because... Uh, I basically thought about, you know, my nephew, Jared, when he was about 12, 13, being the kind of core audience for Cherub. 
And I sent the book to my agent, Claire. She wasn't my agent then, but she then became my agent. And she sort of was very gushy about the book and said, I really like this. And what I love about this book is you've got such strong girl characters mm. and girls will read it too. And I'm like, oh, will they? Uh, so I'd like to claim, you know, again, the, the role of luck and the role of fortune, you know. Uh, I, To be honest, I think I went to a mixed-sex comprehensive school in London. There were lots of girls in my class and, you know, the girls were bossy and feisty and they were part of our lives and mm. we fancied them and fought with them and, you know, whatever it was that you do. Uh, so that was just kind of how my book came out. You know, it was just like the kids I was at school with. So it was almost accidental, but by creating quite strong female characters, um, it clearly worked to my advantage. And yeah, when I go and do a book signing, I would say my audience is about 60, 40 in favour of boys. So an awful lot of girls are reading and enjoying the books. I'm glad they are. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned Claire. So I'd love to, to talk to you about the submission process because this uh, podcast is called Pre-Published. And um, so, you know, a lot of people listening will be at that stage where they've, they've had the idea, they've, they've written it down, perhaps they have submitted. Um, and for you, what happened next? Did you submit to a lot of agents for a start? Um so I understand I understand this is something that's changed. It's now kind of the convention that you're expected to just submit to all agents and all agents are used to that. But I sort of read the Writers and Artists Guidebook circa yeah. sort of 2001 and that said that you should only ever submit to one agent at a time. So that's what I did. And I sort of went through the Writers and Agents Yearbook and I highlighted the ones that did children's books. And I started to think, well, who should I send it to first? Who looks most likely? And I think I just did it in alphabetical order. Um, so I think the first one was Darley Anderson, who right. sent me uh, a, a rejection letter after a few weeks. And then my current agent's company is called Edison Pearson. So it was DE. That was as far as I got. And I was very lucky because I do hear lots of stories about people submitting to agents for years uh, and, you know, not getting anywhere. And again, I think it comes down to the role of luck. I was in the right place at the right time. I'd written a spy series when... Alex Ryder had just become hot and every other publisher wanted their own spy series. And the other really funny thing was uh, my agent uses a mailing address, which is in another part of London, mm -hmm. uh, but she actually lived a couple of streets away from me. And if you know the area, the opening of the recruit is very recognisably the area that I lived in then and the area where my agent lived. So again, I think it was just the fact she kind of recognised the area and the descriptions, it oh, kind of chimed with her. <laughs> and it's funny because she fanatically denies this, so I could be completely wrong. But I really think just the fact that I delivered a book that was kind of set in the streets a couple of miles from where she lived probably on at least some subconscious level would have triggered a degree of curiosity to read a bit more and go a bit deeper uh luck is just so important it's <laughs> luck or stalking agents and deliberately setting the openings yeah, of your books but, well, i mean I, and i hear about you know i think mallory blackman tells a story about how she wrote 15 books and submitted to god knows how many mm. agents you know dozens and dozens and, and my process was basically really easy compared to most other uh, authors that I've spoken to so I was I was very lucky in that respect and how quickly so did you you sent her presumably opening chapters and then she asked for more Is yeah right I think that? so I think the process was the, the so I think I sent her like three chapters and she emailed me back saying this is really interesting can I see some more and I sent her the rest of the manuscript this was in the days before you could send big emails so it was a big big wad of paper going through yeah. the post 
Uh, and then it was really funny because she rang me up and it was the first time I'd spoken to her. And I just got home from work. It was about six o'clock. We'd emailed a few times. And I was really, really excited because it was the first time anyone had told me that they liked my book. And she was saying yeah. it was really great. And I really think I can get a publishing for the deal. And I'd really like to work with you. And this is really exciting. And it was quite funny because I was just sitting at my desk in my tiny little desk in my bedroom that I used to have years ago. And I had a pen in my hand and I didn't realize. And I was so excited that I had the lid off the pen. And when I got off the phone, I realized that I'd been flicking the pen in my hand and I'd actually drawn all over my cheek <laughs> so my, my face was just covered in, and I'm like what the and it was just purely subconscious because I was so excited that oh, this agent was ringing brilliant. me up and saying she liked my book that I managed to actually draw all over my own face without noticing excellent I've got a really strong <laughs> image of that now um, so she liked your book did, did she do any editing of it before she sent it off to publishers we did quite a lot and I think one of the nice things about this Claire... is us drinking our tea and water oh, sorry, by the way the, the clunky no 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 please yes <laughs> I think one of the nice things about Claire is she's an agent who works on her own uh, and she keeps her list of authors quite small so she gives them lots of personal attention uh, I think she has a list of about sort of 10 or 12 authors whereas maybe if you look at some of the big agents you know they might have anything up to 100 authors mm -hmm. which I think effectively means that their assistant is really your agent mm. uh, and yeah we did lots of editing so what Claire generally does is when I have a new series or a new project so obviously with the recruit and the first book in my Henderson's Boys series and my new Robin Hood series that book she'll take a really detailed look at because okay. that's what she's going to submit to a publisher yeah. uh, and then with the subsequent books in the series uh, what she tends to do is you know take a slightly lighter look she'll always read it and I'll always ask her for feedback but it's obviously the one that she's going to submit to publishers that she sort of wants to be in the best possible shape so we did quite a lot of work on it and that was yeah. really interesting as well because uh, that was my sort of first experience of being edited by a professional which was is another new skill that you really have to learn when you first get published it certainly is um, had you done any writing courses and things before how, how did you know about structure or and plotting was it did it just come naturally or I, think, you... I mean it was just sort of learning by buggering around I think oh, and I learned and so many authors seem to have benefited from doing writing courses and I certainly recommend them to people and say they're a great idea but I was actually incredible I'm quite a shy person uh, and I was incredibly shy about telling everyone that I wanted to be a writer. So I didn't tell anyone that I'd written a book or that I was submitting a book. Mm -hmm. I think the only person who knew just because he basically had the desk next to me, it was a guy called Alan who had the desk next to me at work. And right. he kind of knew because he saw it on my desk. Yeah. And I was kind of almost mortified about the fact that he knew. Uh, and then I didn't actually tell anyone that I'd actually got a publishing deal until I had my very first proof copy of The Recruit. And it was actually quite sweet because it coincided quite nicely with my mum's 70th birthday. So on my mum's 70th birthday, I actually said, oh, oh, here's your present. It's my book. It's being published next year, uh, which was actually a really, not really, not really nice moment. And probably actually, uh, when I think about this in hindsight, I'm almost like hijacking my mum's birthday with my moment. But uh, <laughs> at, the time, at the time, it seemed very, uh, it seemed like a very nice thing. If my children uh, are listening to this, that really would be a great excited present. And, I mean, this is one of the things that just cracks me up, you know. Uh, when my first book come out, everyone in the family is excited. All mm. your friends are mm. excited. They argue over how many free copies they get and they all want it signed and they want it signed for their friends. And and then, like, now I think my next book coming out, the Robin Hood one, will be, like, my 31st book. And now right. when I say, oh, I've got another book coming out, it's like, oh, yeah, I haven't read the last one yet. <laughs> and it, it's, it's so funny how it changes over time, the level of excitement with friends and family. Sorry, I'm having two seconds. I just need to wipe my mouth. No problem. Um, so, Claire helped you out with the book. 
And um, did she do much restructuring or was it kind of pretty um, much in shape? I think it was quite, do you know, I think quite a lot of it was content because my instinct was I was going to write this book for a kind of 13-year-old boy who's okay. into violent video games. And, right. uh, and I think it was very much uh, altering it to what I would call the sensibilities of children's publishing, Blimey, which tends to be this. a bit more, you know, <laughs> it was a bit too violent. I think, you know, the opening scene... Um, you know, the opening scene where sort of James hits a girl called Samantha and I think in my original version he smashes a glass in her face and there's blood everywhere, okay. which probably, to be honest, the 13, 14-year-old boy would think is great, you know, a bit, a bit yeah. of a punch-up at the start. But, you know, my age is like, well, it's really well written, but, you know, you've got to tone that down if you actually want to get a publishing this deal. This is the toned-down version, wow. Can I, I, there's something I did want to say. <laughs> you that sound like the, the version that's published is quite horrendous. <laughs> it's not horrendous. I love it. But I do know many... Um, gatekeepers of uh, of children's books who find the level of violence problematic. No children who do, can I just say. Yeah, yeah. But gatekeepers who might. Uh, for mine, because we, it ended up sort of being for sort of 11 to 14 year olds, wouldn't you say? Kind of be at that point. Yeah, that, that, that would be the range. core audience. Yeah, sort of go, when they sort of year six, they start and yeah. usually by the time they get into 14, 15, they're growing out of it. Yeah. They often carry on when they're older, but they yeah. won't start when they're older. I know exactly what you mean. Um, and I, I was writing for a very similar age group and I wasn't allowed the word boobs in mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you have people smashing up cars. I know. And, um, it, and, the, and these content guidelines can vary so much. I mean, one of the ones, I mean, I teased uh, Hodder, as it's now called, Hachette. I teased them quite relentlessly because one of the words I was forbidden, I think it was the second cherub book, I had James calling someone a chav. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was apparently, and I'm like, is that even that offensive? Is and we had this debate about whether Chav is offensive, but I, I, could, I, I wasn't that attached to it. And I was just like, yeah, whatever, take Chav out. And then about six months later, I think it might have even been in the same catalogue that uh, class I ended up in, uh, Grace Dent published a book with Hodder called Diary of a Chav. And I'm like, this is... <laughs> ah, maybe you're allowed to own it if you're if it's an own stories. I wonder if that's yeah, what but it, it was just it was just really you know, and it was just funny this kind of constant sort of battle of what is and isn't acceptable. I, yes, I mean, I, I found I was arguing about very different things. Can I just say with my girls' books with with, with editors? But um, I. My experience of children reading is that they self-edit. So there might well be things in, I guess, either of our books that um, a child would find uncomfortable, but they're very good at just skipping over that bit or ignoring it. I, I, I one of the things I've definitely found is that uh, I think what often happens is parents will turn around and say, oh, my kid's a bright reader and they want them to read a more advanced book. Uh, and often there's two factors. There's the reading level. So there will be lots of sort of probably eight and nine-year-olds who are good readers who could physically read one of my books. Mm. But the content of the book isn't really suitable for an eight or nine year old. Yeah. So it's that kind of it's that kind of duality that I think you always have to uh, balance with a kid's book. I was going to ask you this later, but um, but I'll ask you now because it's sort of at that point. Um, the problem that I had as a mum was I can't remember how old Freddie was when he started, but at the right kind of age he was like nine, ten. Um, read the first one and they were just like crack cocaine for boys he just couldn't get enough he had to read the second one and the third one and the fourth one so yes you must have had quite a few out by that stage and James was growing up and I was reading the first few with him and that was fine but James was getting older James was getting interested in things that older boys get interested in but Freddie didn't want to stop um, and I didn't let him I mean I didn't make him stop you know I was he was reading I was yeah. very happy um, and in fact we had some great conversations I remember when he read 
class no maximum security we were talking about gangs in prisons and and how people cope and the fact that you could kind of be a goodie in a prison and there were sort of levels of goodiness and baddiness and we hadn't (laughs) thought about that before at all um it was really good stuff but how how did you think about early readers rapidly progressing to the later books so so this was basically um this this goes back to the very root of when i start creating cherub i didn't put a lot of thought i thought it was going to be a series but that was literally the extent to which i thought about it being Mm. a series so the cherub series evolved and i had this very difficult situation where i've got the james character and i'm i like the fact that he was always just the, the books came out at roughly six month intervals and james got about six months older in each book so if you were one of the original readers you actually grew up with james mm. and were always about the same age that james was but it did create a problem you know when you've got a 12 year old who then comes out and reads 10 books quite quickly and james is suddenly 15 or 16 and i had to make the decision you know do i make james a very unrealistic character is he basically a 16 year old who's just like he was when he was 12 that wouldn't quite work and I decided that because Cherub was gritty and realistic I would make James older Mm -hmm. but what I've done with my subsequent series where I've actually been aware of this problem from the start so like with Rock War and my new Robin Hood series I've kind of managed the series planned out how many books there are going to be in the series from the start and I've thought about how the characters will age and develop and whether that will be suitable for the readers but it just wasn't on my radar when I was writing The Recruit it was the first time I'd written a kids book and I was just thinking I really want to get this book published I wasn't thinking oh in four years time am I creating a problem for myself so (laughs) it's just something that comes with experience I think and as my husband would say high class problem to have Um, yeah (laughs) nice problem to have (laughs) your millions of readers have a slight (laughs) problem and then hit their teens um we haven't even got to the publisher yet so which was the publisher that picked picked it up from Claire uh, so I think Claire sent it to eight and I think a couple were interested, but it was uh, Hodder, which is now called Hachette Children's, mm. uh, who picked it who, uh, picked it up. I think it took about six or seven months or something between okay. the actual submission and all their sort of going to acquisitions and various things and having preliminary meetings. And were they excited about it? Was it a six-figure um, deal? No, no. I mean, it, publishers are always... Uh, I mean, publishers will always tell you, you know, they're excited about everything and your book is wonderful. And one of the things I always say when you're dealing with a publisher, look for the money. Don't listen to the guff. Look for the thing where, you know, they're spending on a marketing plan. They're paying to get it into a bookstore. Mm. They're giving you a big advance. All those things are the real signs that they're really excited. And the recruit was, I think they liked it, obviously, because they bought it. But it was very much, I think the advance was about, I think it was about £4,000. And I had a two-book deal and I had to write the second book quite quickly. And um, and then the editor who acquired it, a lady called Venetia Gosling, actually left and went to head up the new YA division at Simon & Schuster. So it almost kind of got abandoned a little bit and it got handed to a lovely but very junior editor who's been working with me on my Hachette books ever since. So mm-hmm. it was kind of, and one of the things I actually say was it almost survived through benign neglect because okay. I do wonder if Venetia had stayed and they'd had a bit more marketing and a bit more money behind it, if they then would have been more worried about it and they tried to kind of make it more Alex Ridery and do right. more editing and so I almost wonder if it kind of sneaked through the back door and the reason for for its success is actually based in the fact that it didn't get lots of publicity and lots of editorial work early on. And you're saying before we started that you didn't do events really around the first three books. 
No, I mean, I had a I had a full time job, so that made it quite difficult. Uh, and basically, until people have heard of you, it's very difficult. So I don't think I did any events or any school events or signings or publicity for book one. Uh, I can't, and I think it was really book three. I mean, it's worth noting just how, although the book sort of sold quite well and started developing a fan base, I mean, I don't think Waterstones even stopped Cherub until the third book came out. It wasn't something that had a big marketing push. It was very organic. And yeah. I can remember the sales rep telling me, you know, there's something really quite special happening here. But it isn't in many places yet. And I can remember at one point, I think we'd sold about 2,000 copies of The Recruit, but uh, five or 600 of them were all in Dulwich in a little sort of posh enclave. I want to talk to you was, about Hazel, because yeah. Hazel has been a, a great friend of mine as yeah, well. She, so, she, she talks about you. So it was this little thing where like a third of all my sales were in this little enclave in Dulwich with a couple of posh bookshops and some nice boarding schools. And all the boys in these uh, day, uh, public schools, not boarding schools, uh, and a lot of boys in these schools had kind of caught onto the book and they were like like the first little fan base. Interesting. Um, but now we come to the fun part. So what happened after book three? Uh, I, I mean, I guess it, it was quite gradual. Uh, and I think I sort of, uh, because of the way awards and things work, they tend to take about a year. So book three was already out. But, you know, book one had sort of been nominated for a couple of awards and it won things like the Red House Award. And mm -hmm. I think it sort of just spread through libraries and fans. And it was just this very nice organic thing where mm -hmm. every Cherub book came out and did better than the one before. Whereas the what very often happens with the series is there's big hype behind the first book and then the second and third don't do as well. And then the series disappears. With mm -hmm. Cherub, it was the opposite. Every time a new book came came out uh, the initial sound was bigger it hadn't sold more copies than the original because the original had been around for much longer but each time we got a bigger sort of first week sale and it started getting into the sort of low reaches of the children's chart and more retailers were coming on board and it was really nice and something I was really proud of because you know it wasn't I wasn't a celebrity it wasn't a massive advance it wasn't it just grew through the fact that kids were reading the book and telling their mates and enjoying the book and uh, yeah. I think that's really special. I think it's special too. I think it's the best kind of story. And in fact, the reason that um, I, I contacted you to, to do this particular recording um, when I did was because I'm still on the WhatsApp group for, for my 13-year-old from when he was at uh, primary school. <laughs> and all the mums are saying, you know, what, what, what can my boy read now? He's read everything, you know, what can we give him? And one of the mums said, oh, well, has he tried the Cherub series? And I didn't bother to try because I thought obviously he would have read that. But in fact, he hadn't. And all the mums are saying, oh yeah, my, either my boy is reading it now or he has and he's loved it. And so it's to this day, uh, it is still the thing that, that mums give their, their, their boys yeah, when they go off to secondary it, it, school and they're kind of losing interest in reading and they want to keep them going. And, and, it, and I, do, I do find it quite fascinating because I think quite a lot of publishers have tried to sort of do their version of Cherub, but they very much get sucked back into the conventional thing of making boys' books simple, not having the emotional stuff and the relationship stuff. And there's this very, I think when you see a sort of teenage boy and they, they do kind of bounce around and they do come across as being fairly idiotic and when they're all mucking around with their mates, but just because they're kind of a bit dopey on the outside, actually on the inside, they're actually very sophisticated in the things they think about and the things mm. they want to read about. And I think that often fools people. You know, boys' books don't have to be simplistic. They don't have to be stupid. You know, there's a lot going on in there. And just because they, you know, kick a football around and sit on your couch and don't say very much doesn't mean there isn't a lot going on in their heads. And uh, I think so often publishers, as soon as they say boys books, it instantly just goes to football, violent, simplistic, you know, just rubbish, really, a lot of the time. So it's all about taking boys seriously yeah, as that, active members that's, of society. That's a very, yeah, that's a very succinct way of saying what I've just said, you know, take, take boys seriously. And I, th I think one of the... 
uh, I think one of the things about children's publishing is it is very, very female dominated yeah. uh, in terms of the personnel in the publishers. Absolutely. So I think even when they're mums, even when they've got boys, they don't necessarily grasp that you can write a complicated story about boys and make them think. And, um, and, and one of the things I've actually noticed, though, is the people who are often the most supportive uh, in publishing, it nearly always turns out that they've got a son. Uh, right. <laughs> and, and the same with media and things like that. You know, very often I'll get, oh, this newspaper or this column wants to interview you. And when you get the interview, it's like, oh, my son's read all your books or, you know, stuff like that. They've just experienced what it's like. And yeah. perhaps there is a an instinct to protect children. And I don't think your books... Well, I think in a way your, your books ultimately do protect children because they inform them about the world. Yeah, and and I, I think I, an informed child is... is it's, it's something I find off. quite difficult because often what people will criticise me for is saying, oh, you've got this realistic, believable violence or real, real, realistic seeming danger in the book. But I often think that's better. What I almost don't like is cartoony violence where, you know, mm. oh, uh, I think there's a bit in one of the early Alex Ryder books where a guy walks along a pier and he just gets shot and falls off a pier and he's dead and nothing's ever said about it. And that never really happens in my books. It's always when someone gets hurt, you know, they turn up in the next scene with their injured arm or they go to hospital. or So I think, you know, you can be quite graphic with violence and uh, show the consequences of that violence and of those actions. And I actually think that's better in a way than, you know, just doing it in a cartoon way, certainly when kids get to their sort of early teens. I agree. Um, not that my books are violent at all, but if I were to do it, that is how I would hope to. Um, we were watching back to films. We were watching Atomic Blonde with Charlize Theron very recently. I think it was I on TV. That. You might enjoy it. I really liked it. She, she trained at the same time, apparently, as Keanu Reeves doing the John Wick um, series. And it's a massively violent film, but you really feel every blow. And if somebody is hit, that, that part of them subsequently hurts. And, you know, there are bruises, there are scars. And um, I, I think, yeah, if you're going to show violence, then yeah, then no, I, I do think it's actually it. quite an interesting philosophical point. Is it better to show violence in a realistic way than to show it in a harmless and cartoonish mm. way? Um, it was funny, I was watching the, uh, the new Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian. And that's very much like that because it's been made for the Disney Plus network. It's quite funny because you've got all these very violent sort of scenes and all this stuff going on, but nobody bleeds, nobody ever really gets hurt. The only time the guy gets badly hurt, there's some magic potion that makes him better in about five minutes. And and it's all kind of, in a way, almost a little bit disturbing. Freddie would disagree with you about that. He's now on to The Mandalorian. He really likes <laughs> oh, it. Oh, I mean, he I really liked great. it, but that, the, the, the fact there was no blood or no consequences, yeah. I actually find more disturbing than when someone gets shot in the head and there's blood everywhere, yeah. you know. Um, now, you, you've written, as you say, 34 books, was it? Something like that, 31, 32, yeah. And I'm still on about book four. Um, <laughs> at, so at some stage, it, it did... It did really just take yeah, off. Yeah, like I mean, I, remember, I think I think I, I think it was book five, Divine Madness, and I think that's when I felt really starry because the publisher took me out to Australia, and it was sort of business class flights. The first okay. time I'd flown business class, and I sort of arrive at the airport, and there's a limo to pick me up, and I remember doing one sign, one book signing in Sydney, where um, I think there were like four hundred people queuing out of the bookshop. And sort of the guy, oh my God, this is amazing. This is this is the biggest book signing we've had since Ian Thorpe, who was like the Australian the swimmer, swimmer who won like seven gold medals at the Olympics wow. or something. So it was really kind of this 
this period. And I find it really fascinating because what I've discovered is I think every author has a limit on that because what happens is you build an audience with your early books mm. and then you reach a peak audience. But what then happens is now my audience is very divided. So I might have, I probably still sell as many books as I ever have, but when I bring a new book out, and if you think about people like, say, John Grisham or Stephen King, who've been around for years and years, their new books don't necessarily have a huge impact because their readership is divided. Mm. A few might buy the new one, but there's going to be people who are still reading The Shining or The Firm or, in my case, The Recruit. Or, and it's that yeah. kind of thing. So it's actually quite funny, that kind of big thing where everyone is really excited about your new book and you get signings and stuff like that actually didn't last for that long. That's probably true for everybody. Yeah, I, I think it's... And, and, I, it really quite, and I was quite disappointed when like book 12 comes out and I'm suddenly thinking... Why is my audience getting smaller? <laughs> and it's weird everybody? because I'm looking at my... St- and I'm not selling any less books. I'm yeah. not making less money. But there's just not the level of... You know, when you've got a fan base and you've got three books, uh, every every fan wants book four. When you've got 31 books, uh, your fans are all over the place. Yeah. I, I, there's a lovely interview between Oprah and J.K. Rowling on this very <laughs> subject. Of the, you, that You reach a certain crest of a wave of success. And did, did you know at that point, did, did somebody tell you this is probably as good as I, it's going to get? I don't think anyone ever told me that. I think because publishing people are always like, you know, we're going to make this bigger. We, they're always mm. very upbeat and very positive. Uh, so I didn't, I, but it was, there was this kind of adjustment period where um, I'm just kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, well, well, 400 people turned up at the signing for this book. And then three books later, it's like 100 people and, Oh, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's just quite funny. It's not something that I expected or predicted. Right. Um, but in the course of all of this, um, there was a film option, wasn't there, that was going to happen? So selling very well in Germany and other places as well. Sorry. So, so, you were selling well in Germany and other yeah, places? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, and this is one of the other things that sort of started to happen probably around that sort of 2007, 2008 period. Uh, the books came out in France. The French were incredibly behind Cherub and they did these massive promotions. They gave thousands of books away and it went very, very well. And that was really interesting because that was kind of the first market where Cherub was promoted very heavily and it did do very well and I think now I think I've sold almost as many cherub books in France as in the UK mm, uh, and, but, but then there was the kind of sleeper one the German one was really funny because they just bought the books on a very low key basis uh, and I didn't really notice that the books had taken off and we didn't do any publicity or promotion in Germany and then suddenly I just got a royalty statement and there was suddenly a very large sum of money had come from Germany so it was really funny because the cherub books took off in Germany with no promotion mm-hmm. and nobody even really noticing until and I think it was one of the people the rights people at Hachette sort of almost wrote to the German publisher and said "Do you have you noticed how many of these books you're selling because I don't know maybe the editor who acquired it had left or whatever right. you know but it was and it's quite funny that you know for all the work publishers put into a book they can end up with a book on their list that they've done very little work with that becomes really successful they must love it when that happens um and you were writing henderson boys which is freddie's favorite series so set in the second world war so the, the ch of cherub Charles. yeah henderson. so 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 henderson's boys was really a cherub prequel i mean one of the things when you're writing a long series is there's always just this pressure to carry on but there's ultimately only so many stories about the same scenario that you can write without repeating yourself and i thought one of the ways that I could kind of keep Cherub going was to write a prequel series about how the Cherub organization began in the Second World War. Um, and that series, it wasn't as successful as Cherub, although as people have, uh, as have sort of pointed out, it, it's actually been very successful in the context of anything else they've published apart from Cherub. So right. it's, 
still sold very well and the books have done quite nicely and I got a solid fan base. It's, it's very, again, it's very real about war. I was, I was rereading the, the first one in that series because obviously Freddie has a whole collection. And um, yeah, it's, 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 some of the scenes have really stuck with me. Um, the, the horror that, that you describe that the characters are moving through in order to get things done is, is I think it's very sensitively done. Yeah, and that was, and, and it was, I, I don't think I'd write historical fiction again just because I put so much work into, especially with the first couple of books, just getting it right and getting the feel for it. Mm. And it's not so much the big sweep, you know, it's very easy to read a historical timeline of what happened in World War II. But I think the thing with historical fiction, it's, you know, someone walks into a barn in France in 1932, you know, is there running water? I mean, 1939, sorry. Is there running water? Is there, what does the roof look like? Is mm. there a hard floor or a mud floor? Or a, And it's all those little details and getting the little bits right. Uh, that are so difficult. And I think some writers really love that and really relish this. I'm probably a bit lazy and I just like telling my story and developing my character. So Henderson's Boys was a really interesting experience of writing seven books of historical fiction and realising at the end that I never want to write historical <laughs> fiction again. <laughs> I've done a couple. I, I must say, I, I enjoyed it to my surprise because I dreaded the research because I wanted to do it well and I thought, my goodness, this is going to be exhausting. And then actually doing it, I just loved everything that one learns in the course yeah. of And I think the actual, it. the main bit of the research you know reading loads of books about world war ii and history and films and movies and documentaries that was all fine what i hated was when you were in a very specific scene and you needed to get something quite small right that was the thing that i yeah. found and, and it could take so much time yeah. you know a scene that i'll just belt you know if i'm doing one of my you know robin hood or uh, rock war books that are sort of set in the present day it's very easy just to write a scene because you know how everything is yeah but you just get caught up on these fiddly little details yeah what kind of shoes would they have had yeah shoes yeah shoes <laughs> um You've casually said that you were writing kind of a couple of books a year. How do you write a couple of books a year? I can't do that. I, I'm fascinated by the writing process and how everyone's writing process is different. Um, I will usually generate an idea and that, you know, generating an idea may take me sort of three or four months. Obviously with a series, it's a mm. bit more planned in advance. And then when I start to write, it only really takes me... I mean, the Cherub length book sort of took six to seven weeks. My new Robin Hood oh, ones that are no. a bit shorter would take have take me sort of four or five weeks. And it's incredibly intense. I sit down and I become incredibly unsociable. I think when I was writing one of my Rockwell books, I suddenly realised when the Ocado man came and delivered the food that I'd not left the house for about a week. And I'd right. just been... And it's this very heavy process I've got the story all planned out and I just kind of want to get it out and I, I remember having a conversation along these lines with David Armand and you know David Armand tends to write a book every sort of year 18 months and they tend to be quite slim volumes maybe 30 40,000 mm. words and I'm just like what the hell do you do all day? you know how <laughs> how can you take a year and a half to write a 30,000 so it's fascinating how and I remember reading about Darren Shan and he's a bit like me he always says he's got sort of a shelf with like 10 books that he's written that can't be published because you can only publish so many books a year and yeah uh, so I've yeah, his bookshelves of his books are ridiculously large. Yeah, and, and but he's also got all these books that he's written and hasn't published mm. and he writes. So it's fat. I'm not really, I don't really understand why different people's writing processes are so different. But uh, my writing two books a year, I mean, these days it's more like one book a year uh, just because I've got so many books in the market. You can't keep sticking loads and loads of new books out. They don't have any impact. But yeah, so, it just feels very natural to me to write at a certain pace. That's amazing. <laughs> Astonished that you can do it so fast and so consistently as well. So what what is your plot? What does your plan look like that you're working uh, to? So, 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 you know, first of all, there's obviously the idea. 
you know, that will be, you know, I, I don't know, say, you know, the Cherub, Cherub, I think it's the 12th Cherub book is about, uh, 10th one, sorry, is about bike gangs. So, you know, you do lots of research, lots of reading on bike gangs, put together your very rough plot. But for me, almost the writing of the book is in that planning stage, which usually takes me about two or three weeks. And my chapter plan is just every chapter of the book and probably only about sort of two or three lines, a few okay. notes on the key characters. But I will fiddle with that for an incredibly long time okay. to get it right. And one of the things that drives me, I, I don't understand how some writers do it. I do not understand how someone can write a book without knowing everything that happens and how everything mm -hmm. develops in the book. Because I think that's where the book gets better. And I think it goes back to the thing, I can't remember who said it, but you know, the, the, there's quite a well-known quote that it's easy to, you know, you will sell a book that is badly written but has a good story, but you will never sell a book that is well-written that has a bad story. And I think getting yeah. the story and the plot right, you know, I think the person actually used Jeffrey Archer as the example of someone who's not a very good writer, but actually structures really interesting, quirky, weird sometimes quite incredible plots, but they clearly appeal to people. You I know. get that. Dare I add Dan Brown to that? <laughs> I, you know, I've never actually read Dan Brown. I probably should because he's so massively famous, but yeah. I've never read it. I found the Da Vinci Code sentence by sentence. I just could hardly bear it, but I had yeah. to turn those pages because the plot Yeah, and, and, that's so a, and that's a fascinating skill. And clearly where I exist in the part of the market where my primary readers are sort of tweens and teens, mm. uh, clearly it's that page turning thing that is probably more important and getting the plot and the structure uh, one of the things I always say, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, especially with screenwriting more, but, you know, having three acts in the books and certain things yeah. have to happen and you have yeah. to have key. And you read these how to write novel books. And what I always say is, I don't bother with that. I make a chapter plan and my ideal, it doesn't quite work. My ideal is that you could take any chapter out of any one of my books and just read that chapter and have it be in an exciting story on its own. Okay. I wish I could do that with every right. book because inevitably some chapters don't work because you just need to link up the bits of the plot. But that's my attempt you know when I'm when I'm doing that plotting if this bit looks a bit dull it's got to be changed before and you sit down and write do you have a, a sense of where the main climax is going to be do you have a main climax in mind with each one is that what you're writing I mean towards? I think yeah, I, I mean I think there has to be something at the end of the book there has to be whether it's a good resolution or a bad resolution there has to be a satisfactory resolution I do actually find that possibly the most difficult bit though because I, it, it's doing the resolution in a in an in an interesting way uh, going back to these sort of modern superhero movies where the ending is pretty much always the same. There's a battle between the good guy and the bad guy. Yeah. And then you watch sort of, you know, more interesting stuff like you watch 70s movies where there's, you know, there's a hostage crisis. I mean, I always think the genius of sort of the early Star Wars movies is just George Lucas just created those great action sequences like the trench sequence blowing up the Death Star, which was like nothing anyone mm. else had seen. Uh, the earlier scene in Star Wars where, uh, was it Han, Luke and Leia are trapped in the trash compactor yes. with the doors closing yes. in. Obviously, then you go to Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was also created by George Lucas and the rolling concrete ball and the hat under the sliding door. And, and it's that stuff that I find really hard. You know, every book has to have a conclusion. And how do you make it fresh and original? Because so often when I read stuff, um, I, I just find it's very predictable, the ending. And that's probably the bit of writing that I find hardest is that how do I make this ending interesting? But you haven't found it that difficult by the sound of things to get to that point with loads I, of... 
I get very anxious about it and I rack my brain. And usually I'm at my most miserable when I'm plotting a book because when I'm doing that bit where I'm plotting and writing the plan, Mm. I often think I'm never going to solve this. This And even though I know logically that I've done, especially now, you know, I've done this process 25, 30 times before, still I just get so miserable when I just sit. and, And quite often when I'm planning a book, I will, you know, just be thinking and sitting at a desk for two or three hours and get absolutely nowhere. And you think, is there ever going to be a breakthrough? And so far there always has been. Having said that, I mean, some of the early cherub books, like, for example, Divine Madness, which is about a cherub book about a religious cult. I mean, that was originally the plot for the third book, and I just couldn't get anywhere with it, and I couldn't make it work. Right, yeah. And then suddenly, I think about a year or so later, I suddenly had an idea, and uh, so the third cherub book ended about being about a prison break, and then the religious cult story ended up being the fifth book so sometimes the idea just doesn't quite come off and you have to hold it back but and it is it's easily the most frustrating part of being a writer so you've got you've got to cut two to three weeks of, of that painful process and then yeah. five to six weeks of writing I mean I, I used to see a therapist for a while after I suffered from depression and mm. I actually had some quite interesting sessions talking with my therapist where it's just like I have this problem where I write very intensely. And what I would really like to do is to start writing a book. You know, a lot of the time I've not got much to do because even if you're writing two books a year, if it only takes you six or seven weeks, then a lot of the... You have, and so what I'd really like to do is just be rational and say, I'm going to start writing at nine in the morning and I'll work till five o'clock, say four or five days a week. And then the book will take me, you know, and then most of the year I'll sort of have something to write or something right. to edit. But I've tried so hard to do that. And, and that's once, clearly not your Once process. the book is underway, it's in my head. Mm. It has to, I, I, I always I always make the rather gross analogy that it's a bit like having diarrhea and it sort of just has to come mm. out. And, and, and it literally is like that. It just, when I start writing, I just have to write. So it's like <laughs> a sort of 24-7 thing while you're doing yeah, it. Yeah, it doesn't, re- and, it's, and, it's, and it feels quite unhealthy and quite unnatural. And as I say, I've tried really hard to discipline myself and do the thing where, right, it's five o'clock, I'm going to stop writing. But then you're watching telly and the thoughts of the story are in your head. Yeah. And then it's like, I oh, will just reach for the laptop and reread that little bit. And oh. then suddenly it's nine o'clock and you're... So it's it's, a, it's funny. I don't, I don't quite understand it. But as I say, different writers' writing processes, they're all very different. And I'm quite fascinated by them, actually. Yeah, well, it sounds to me, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's clearly working really but it, well But you. you know what the thing is? In a way, the way that I write isn't that healthy because I do just kind of disappear <laughs> from the world and and quite often I'm quite tired and quite headachey and you know it's so I would yeah. actually like to write in a more rational way well do you know what I've just just re- retweeted a, a, um, a quote from Stephen Sondheim because I was listening to his Desert Island Discs recently and, and he he had a lot of his own stuff on Desert Island Discs as some people do and um, one of the, the, the songs that, that he wanted was Finishing the Hat from um, oh, in the park, Sunday in the park with George about Surat, and it's about the artistic process. And one of the lines is a sort of looking at the world from my window as I finish the hat. And it's very much about being cut off from the world. As an artist, one one is yeah. at times one should be. So yeah. yes, and it and might feel odd to you, but yeah. I think and it's, and it's, it's part and of it's it. interesting because, like, I mean, I've just had my nephew stand for Christmas, and he was quite keen to stay for an extra week, and I was like. Uh, there, was, there was no problem with that but I just kind of wanted to get on with my writing again yeah. and be in my world and the other thing that's quite fascinating is you know how many writers uh, I mean I live on my own so my office is in my house but how many writers you know they go to a shed or they go to quite yeah. a physical place and I know so, but then you get other writers who say oh you know I mean someone said to me if you imagine you want to meet up and write in a cafe and it's like 
that's not going to work. <laughs> but clearly <laughs> it works for you them. You know, the idea yeah. that I can actually open my laptop and write when there's a screaming baby in a buggy and someone chugging a coffee machine and another writer who I could chat to and nothing's going to happen. <laughs> you haven't pictured our houses. You see, that, that is quieter than my house. Yeah, <laughs> so oh, well, that's me, that... I mean, that's obviously, yeah, and that, I mean, that's why the classic writer thing is the shed at the end of the garden. You yep. know, I know Cress, Cressida Cow, um, she often uh, posts pictures of her rather divine looking writer's shed at the end of the garden. But I mean, I know she sort of got through, I mean, they're a bit older now, but you know, she had three teenage kids mm. in a very chaotic household. So the idea of going to the end of a nice long garden and writing in a shed, you know, seemed ideal. Well, I've got one at the end of mine. It's not, it's a short garden and it's not a <laughs> heavenly shed, but yes, it's very useful for escaping. Um, and just, so I'm just interested that this intense draft that you do, that first draft, I always say to students that writing is rewriting, but it sounds as if for you it might not be. I... I remember early on with the recruit, my first book, and I think this actually came a lot out of that long period where I was trying to write literary fiction. And I think one of the things I found with editing is there's a kind of level of basic editing where you pick up your mistakes and just the obvious edits. Mm. One of the things I realised with the recruit where I did lots of drafts and was quite anxious before sending it out, when I reread some of the early drafts, Things were different, but they weren't necessarily better. And I'd kind of lost my voice. I'd lost yeah. confidence in jokes and taken jokes out. And where a sentence was a little bit quirky, I'd worried that people wouldn't get it and made it more conventional. Mm-hmm. And so it was, when I read the very early drafts of the, you know, when I read the very, the, there, you can change things by doing lots of editing. The question I think everyone has to ask is once you get past the basic editing is, are you making it better or are you just making it different? Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I'm quite reluctant. So so my basic edit, I will write the book. Um, what I tend to do is I usually try and write one chapter a day. It doesn't quite work that way. But if I write one chapter a day, then the next day I will edit it. Then very deliberately, I will never go back and reread what I've written until yes. I get to the end of the book. Yes. And then I'll basically do an edit, one edit, and then I'll send it to my agent and then she will give me feedback. I mean, one of the other nice things, of course, about being, you know, professionally published and having a good agent who turns things around quickly is I do have that ability that I can write something and then I have an agent who I very much trust her opinions and have a lot of confidence in that I can send the book to and get her feedback. So I think that's really, that's a nice thing that a lot of sort of you have when you're an established writer that you don't have when you're first starting out. And do you get light touch editing from Hachette at the end of it then? So, yeah, I mean, these days it's hotkey. It's it's funny, my last, I, I think over time, my books have become more lightly edited. And I guess partly that's experience. Mm. Um, partly, you know, I know when I'm writing something that the editor is going to say this isn't suitable. I know that when an editor has told me three books running that something doesn't work, I'm going to be conscious of it and not do that again. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, over time... Uh, the edits on my books have got lighter and I, I don't know if that's common for writers as they publish more books I've got no idea but I've certainly found it with me uh, that the editing process has got less painful over time although having said that actually you know it's funny because I've just said this and now I'm going to contradict it completely because I wrote the first book in my new series my Robin Hood series and basically my agent didn't like it and it's often the start of a series that is the most difficult and my agent made quite a few criticisms and she was so unhappy with lots of aspects of it that I actually completely abandoned it and rewrote the entire and this is one of the other things I find rewriting is easier than you know it's like when you've knitted a jumper or something if you've got to pull it apart and correct it it's easy just to start again from scratch so my actual Robin Hood series there was actually it's funny because one of the my original ideas for the Robin Hood series was that the Robin hero was going to be a girl called Robin not a boy and I was 
so I actually wrote an entire draft where Robin was a girl. Yeah. Uh, and then, I don't know, it all just come across a bit too Hunger Gamesy, and various other aspects of the plot didn't work. And then I realised it's, it's just going to be easier to start again because by the time you change the main character and you change the plot details, and it's like, actually, it's going to be easier <laughs> to rewrite, especially because I write relatively quickly. Yeah. So I think the draft of Robin Hood that's going to be published in April will probably only have about, I think about 10, 15% of it is from the original. Oh, and the rest of it was completely rewritten from scratch. Right, but in its way, still a, a first draft, a new, a new draft, anyway. In, in a, you know, in not, a not way, a, but I mean, you know, as I say, 80, 90% of them, the content is completely new. Yeah. There were a few bits where it was like an action sequence that I was carrying over and it was just like, well, there's no point in rewriting this because it's, it's the same scene. But it's yeah. fundamentally, it was a different book with a very different structure and a completely different version of Robin Hood. And uh, is this for a different age group? Uh, so what I've done is just because the market has changed a bit, YA, I mean, for example, my, my old publisher, Hachette, they used to, I think they used to say they had 24 slots a year for YA books. And they've now, a couple of years ago, they'd cut that to eight because the market was in decline. And I wouldn't be surprised now if they'd now cut it even lower than yeah. eight. So I'm viewing uh, this new Robin Hood series as coming in at the lowest end of Cherub. Uh, and uh, one, one of my slogans for the books is, you know, not all kids are wimpy because I kind of want it to be a follow-up for kids who are into those sort of David Williams and Wimpy Kid type books. Right. So it's just slightly younger than Cherub. I think the publishers are kind of pitching it as being the same kind of age range as the early Cherub books. Uh, and we've just cut a, changed the content a little bit. There's basically no sort of relationship or sexual content which comes more into Cherub later on. Mm. And, z and no, no swear words for the first time ever, which has been quite difficult. Has it? <laughs> Um, and is it set in the Middle Ages? No, so it's a very contemporary Robin okay. Hood. Right. Uh, it's called it's called uh, Hacking Heist and Flame and Arrow. So we've got a version of Robin Hood. He's kind of a he's into computer hacking and he's quite a kind of geeky kind of kid. Uh, and what we've done with the cover, just to make it absolutely abundantly clear, we've got Robin Hood standing on the bonnet of an upturned police car in the middle of a riot. So we've made it very clear to to anyone who sees the cover that it's not set in the Middle Ages. It's no. very much a more, it's contemporary, it's believable, uh, but it's about a sort of rebellious 12-year-old boy who runs away and becomes a hero. And how many books in the series, given that uh, you now So I've, I've, I've kind of got, uh, what I did, uh, I've got signed a contract for four, so mm -hmm. there will definitely be four, but I've kind of got the idea that it will probably be a 12-book series if it's successful enough to go on further. Right. Uh, and I have done, like I said earlier on, I've plotted it all out that Robin is 12 at the start, he would be... Um, 15 at the end so he's not getting too old like the characters did in Cherub books yeah. I'm making him age a bit more slowly <laughs> I learned I learned this when, when when Threads came out I you know it was only three books but yet it was a year a school year each time and but even that was was tricky you know they went from they went from sort of 12 13 to 15 16 and yeah. that's a massive and I mean, and it's, a real, it's, a real, it's a real dilemma because quite often you'll read a, a series of books and it's like well the characters are 17 now but they're still behaving like they're 12 and I loathe that I think if you're gonna, if you're gonna make your character 17, they've got to behave like a 17 year old. Yeah. And to be fair, I think one of the reasons I was able to sustain the Cherub series over 17 books was because those characters developed and changed. If you pick up the recruit, James is a very different person to the person he is in New Guard. In the last, I mean, actually, I mean, James actually becomes an adult in the in the last 
Cherub books, I've actually switched from James being the main character to actually being one of the staff. So I think mm. in the last Cherub books, James is 23 and yeah. he's actually left, gone to university, come back and he's one of the staff, not one of the oh, kids. Right. And there's a new cast of kids. So, uh, But I, I really wanted to do that because although I think a lot of fans would have just rather I concentrated, James was just always there going on missions. It would have just become less believable and more and more contrived as the series went That's on. It's a really interesting way of doing it. I think it's something Robin Stevens has managed very well with her Murder Most Unladylike series. She's obviously thought about this so uh is it sort of every school term that that she does it the, the characters do age um i i think it's a really nice combination so it, it's it's not like a full year each time yeah. but nevertheless so so this is what I, this is what i've kind of worked out with robin hood that if it if it does end up being a 12 book series robin is 12 at the start and 50 so he basically gets a year older every sort of three or four books which means that when the series reaches the end he's, he's still a, he's older than he is at the start but he's still basically a kid not a you know, horn, horny teenager. Right. <laughs> we've, we've left many books out. I mean, we we met um, when you, you were launching your Rock War series because we were both writing about bands. So you, you went into the music world, didn't you? Yeah, I, I mean, and I don't know how your rock music series went, but Rock War, I mean, Rock War really tanked. I mean, Hachette paid me quite a lot of money for it. They put huge effort behind it. And I think, again, this just shows how, you know, I thought Rock War was going to be hot stuff. I was really excited about it. I was doing something different. Mm. But it just did didn't really chime with the readership in the same way that Cherub did. And I, I think it just goes to show how you need a bit of luck and so many authors will do something successful and then struggle to do something else successful. And, you know, thinking about my new series, is Robin Hood going to be like Cherub or is it going to be like Rock War? And I honestly don't know. I've yeah. got more experience now. But And I was chatting with a group of author pals just over lunch, you know. And, I mean, one of the things we noticed was that for every one of us, it was our first books and our first series of books that were the most successful thing we've ever done, which is quite ironic. Yeah, because you so, think yeah. you get more experience you get better but actually you know a bit of a bit of naivety luck and inexperience actually seems to be more likely to chime with a group of readers than all the things that you think you know later on there you go pre-published listeners yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the world is out there waiting for you <laughs> some of the some of the um information that, that I was reading about you came from an, an interview you did for the Financial Times which I found quite funny as a, as a children's author and you know how I made my first that was and that, that was a fascinating article because she was a lovely journalist but she was quite elderly and I think she was well into her 70s and she it was the most intense interview I've ever done because she almost went line by line through what she was going to write most journalists these days are in a huge hurry and they'll turn up at your house and they'll be in and out in sort of 20 25 minutes or they'll just do it on the phone and this this interview process for that was so funny she was so like line by line and she rang me back about six times it was hilarious that's why I like the FT it's very reliable yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, they certainly put the effort in and actually write proper articles. Yeah. Um, so you have made your million by that stage. One of the, I think you're, you're the only person I've met in the publishing world who's actually <laughs> made decent money out of it. I, I mean, I, do, I, do, as, as, I mean, I keep saying luck and, and this is it. I mean, literally, I know so many writers who you read their books and you think this, this is better than my book. This person's ridiculously talented. And I do just feel incredibly lucky. And I mean, like now, you know, yes, I'm a bit anxious about my Robin Hood series and I really want it to be a success because that means I can carry on writing books, um, which is something I love to do. Mm. But from what I, the worry I don't have is the worry a lot of authors have is if my new Robin Hood series isn't successful, I can't pay the mortgage, I got to get a job teaching or go back to doing what I did before. Or So, I mean, and that's incredibly lucky, as you say. 
I, I mean, you know, I, I know a couple of quite wealthy authors, but they're few and far between. I mean, Cressida Cow would probably be the one I know well that would come to mind yeah, with a How yeah. to Tame Your Dragon books. But no, there aren't many. You know, the vast majority are scratching to make a living. And one of the things I always say, you know, when kids ask me, say they want to become writers, and uh, I, I think I've just had a 500 quid bill to fix my heating, and I always say, you know, become a, you know, bec- become a plumber, become a heating engineer, become an electrician. Yes. <laughs> You're far more likely to make a decent living. Become a Plumber who writes in your spare time. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's one of the other you know, people say, oh, should I do a degree in creative writing? It's like, well, actually, you know, maybe do something different, you know, teach, learn a skill, learn a trade. Because uh, I'm I'm not entirely, con- I, you know, th- I think there's benefit to doing a certain amount of learning about creative writing, but I don't think it's something you need to do a degree in. Mm. Uh, uh, and I, I, I know quite a few actors who are quite cynical about people doing acting degrees. You know, it's uh, th- there isn't that much to learn. <laughs> Well, hopefully people can learn it from podcasts like this. Well, well I, th- I think it's the way you learn. You learn from experience and, you know, some things just can't be... The only way you're ever going to learn to write is by doing lots of writing, to be honest. That is very true. Thank you so much for all of this. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you about it all. Um, I'd always like to end with asking what your tips for aspiring writers would be. I mean, you've already given us a few. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the one I always give to kids... Uh, and I, I've already pretty much mentioned it, but it is just that thing. Don't get bogged down like I did trying to write something you're not good at. Mm. Move out of your comfort zone. Don't worry about whether it's going to be a book or whether you're starting a novel. Just try writing loads of different stuff and see what you enjoy and what you're good at because you, you may actually be surprised. And the same goes with reading. If you want to write a sci-fi book, don't just read sci-fi books. Read thrillers, read romance, read because you know it's that thing of just sort of getting out there and trying lots of different things that's, that's going to make you different and original and going to make you realise where your skill lies. And we'll call it a day there. Robert Muchmore, thank you so much for being on Review Published. Thank you. (laughs) Robert and I talked for an hour, but there were so many things we didn't get to discuss. I only realised as I was packing up that I didn't ask him about the Cherub website, which he set up personally and which played a big part in getting the series going. That was in the days when it was possible for children under 13 to participate in forums. Now, data protection rules and online child protection, both great in their way, have made such things much more difficult, if not impossible. I also didn't talk to him about T-shirts. Having been told by his publisher that merchandising for YA wasn't a thing, Robert has probably made more from Cherub T-shirts than I have from all my books. Some of it from me, as my son Freddie was keen to have one. I'll have to talk to Robert again one day, I think, as there was so much to say. However, that's it for now. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love suggestions for future themes and guests too. You can join us on Twitter at Pre-Pub Podcast and find me at my website, which is sophiabennett.com. <laughs>